from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. About a month ago, just after the U.S.-led coalition had run ISIS out of Iraq, Iraqi forces invaded Kurdish territory and started a very nasty conflict. The popular mobilization forces have engaged in what is perhaps ethnic cleansing. They have forced Kurdish people from their homes. They have burnt their homes and businesses. So the situation for the population there is very negative. That's Bayan Sami Abdurrahman, the Kurdistan regional government representative to the U.S., speaking to us on November 29th, 2017. But on October 17th, the day after the incursion, the U.S. military released a statement saying it believed it all was a misunderstanding. But we spoke to Abdurrahman on that same day, and she didn't see a misunderstanding. So I don't understand where the United States uh, is saying, or why the United States is saying that this was some kind of misunderstanding. If there is an attempt to downplay what's happening in Kirkuk, I believe it's misguided. What's happening in Kirkuk is a disaster. And it's having an impact on U.S. military operations there as well. It's starting to distract from uh, our preparations for our next phase of the campaign. A look at this new conflict, the players involved, the impact on the U.S., and of course, the fight to root ISIS out of the region. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. On October 16th, Iraqi military forces, along with Iranian Quds militia, launched an incursion into the Peshmerga-controlled areas of the oil province of Kirkuk in Kurdistan. It was a violent surprise. We have received repeated uh, reports that... um, Hundreds have been killed and many, many more injured. And thousands of people are fleeing Kirkuk. We have heard um, that some of the Peshmerga who were captured by the militias have been executed. We have seen footage on television, on our TV screens, of Shia militias beating civilians as they walk through the streets, breaking their arms and legs. So. It's a very, very grave situation. That was a part of our conversation with Bayan Sami Abdulrahman, the Kurdistan Regional Government Representative to the U.S. It happened on October 17th, the same day the U.S. military put out a statement saying coalition forces and advisors are not supporting the government of Iraq or the Kurdistan Regional Government activities near Kirkuk, but are aware of reports of a limited exchange of fire during the pre-dawn hours of October 16th. We believe the engagement this morning was a misunderstanding and not deliberate 
as two elements attempted to link up under limited visibility conditions. But Abdul Rahman did not see it that way. Well, frankly, I'm puzzled by the statement uh, that there was some kind of misunderstanding. There was no misunderstanding. Uh, the Popular Mobilization Front, which forces, excuse me, Popular Mobilization Forces, which are uh, largely a Shia militia, have uh, been threatening Kurdistan, and uh, overnight they started to uh, head towards Kirkuk. At first, uh, Prime Minister Abadi was saying that they would only uh, take certain installations, such as the airfield, the oil installations, but in fact, the militias have gone on and they have rampaged through the city itself, and there have been casualties. Um, there is no misunderstanding. These were militias uh, heavily armed, some of them Iranian-backed militias using American weapons. Uh, Abraham tanks and uh, heavy artillery mortars were used against the Peshmerga. Um, so I don't understand where the United States uh, is saying or why the United States is saying that this was some kind of misunderstanding. If there is an attempt to downplay what's happening in Kirkuk, I believe it's misguided. What's happening in Kirkuk is a disaster. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need the United States to show leadership and to bring the two sides together to first and foremost uh, urge a ceasefire, a de-escalation, and then dialogue between uh, Baghdad and Erbil so that we can avoid further conflict and really start to negotiate about the all, all the issues that are, have led to this. Well, it is now November 29th, 2017, more than 40 days since that incursion and that violent clash, and nothing much has happened. We spoke again today with Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman to get an update on what the situation on the ground is. Madam Abdul Rahman, the last time we spoke back in October, this was a day after the Iraqi-led forces and the popular mobilization forces essentially overran neighborhoods in Kirkuk and in the surrounding area and essentially engaged in what was later uh, determined, and you mentioned to us that day, were atrocities by burning homes. There were lots of casualties and um, a lot of uh, activities that were frankly quite a shock to everyone. So in following up on that, I want to see, want to hear from you today what the situation is there now since we last spoke. Well, the situation in Kirkuk is that the, the Iran-backed militias and the federal forces are in control. Um, what used to be a stable part of Iraq is now unstable. Um, the people there, especially the Kurdish community there, feel that they are being watched. Um, about 180,000 people fled after the PMUs, the, sorry, the Popular Mobilization Forces and the Iraqi Federal Forces moved in. So within the space of a few days, nearly 200,000 people have become homeless. We also have reports, including reports by Amnesty International, that in Toshormatu, which is near Kirkuk, um, the PMF, uh, the Popular Mobilization Forces, have engaged in what is 
perhaps ethnic cleansing. They have forced Kurdish people from their homes. They have burnt their homes and businesses. So the situation for the population there is very negative. Um, those were places that were relatively stable and people were able to go about their daily lives in a normal way. And that has all turned upside down. What have you heard from your American counterparts regarding this? Was this a surprise to the U.S. and uh, the coalition forces? Well, we understand that uh, Prime Minister Abadi had made an arrangement with uh, one faction within one of the Kurdish political parties for some kind of handover in Kirkuk. This was brokered by Qasem Soleimani, who is uh, a famous uh, or infamous, I don't know how to put it, um, Iranian IRGC leader. And uh, so we believe the United States was aware of this. Um, the U.S. Uh, believes that Iran's role was minimal. We believe Iran was instrumental. And uh, since then, anyway, what we have seen is the Iran-backed militias take control. And this is very worrying. It should be worrying not only for the people of Kurdistan, but also for the people who live in those areas, which are stipulated as disputed territories within the Iraqi constitution. But it should also be worrying for Baghdad. Is Iraq an independent country? Or is it a country that operates at the behest of outside forces? I've seen reports, too, that it wasn't just the U.S. that was aware of this, that perhaps the U.K. was aware as well. Is that, is that just something that you believe to be true? Yes, this is our understanding is that the U.S. and the U.K. were aware. Um, they, of course, I should be fair to them, they will say that they were not aware of the details and that they saw this as a handover by local security forces to federal forces. But, um, you know, for us, the evidence of Iran's role, and particularly Qasem Soleimani, is overwhelming. And nobody in Iraq denies it. <laughs> this is the irony. Uh, there are people who have been on television proudly saying that this is what happened. Have your American counterparts addressed this issue to you? Because it appears to me, from the outside looking in, that this situation um, was what opened the door to the atrocities that you've detailed today. So have you heard anything from your American counterparts since all this took place? Well, what's really important for us today is that we need the United States to engage in a very hands-on, practical, proactive way to bring Kurdistan region and Baghdad to the negotiating table. What we have seen happen in Kirkuk, Toshormatu, the disputed territories, is just part of the story. Baghdad has also banned international flights to Kurdistan. So this has impacted the assistance to the uh, hundreds of thousands, in fact, nearly two million displaced Iraqis and Syrian refugees. Nearly two million people have come to Kurdistan since ISIS came and since the Syrian war began for refuge. The UN and NGO workers need to fly into Kurdistan to be able to assist them. The ban on international flights is affecting the humanitarian assistance. It's a collective punishment of the Kurdish people. 
and it is against the constitution. Uh, we also have Baghdad uh, cutting the uh, oil exports from Kirkuk, which has impacted the income for the Kurdistan region. There are many, uh, many other aspects as well. The popular mobilization forces and the Iraqi military together have uh, come to an area close to Rabia, which is close to the Syrian border. They want to take by force control of Kurdistan's border with Syria and with Turkey. There is no need to do this. There is, there is no terrorist activity there. It is under control. And if the federal forces want to be there, by federal forces, I mean customs, I mean civilian immigration officials, they are already there. There is no need for a force to be there. So what we're seeing right now is an economic and military besiegement of Kurdistan region in Iraq, which is housing 1.8 million Syrian refugees and displaced Iraqis, among them Christians and Yazidis, who suffered genocide at the hands of ISIS. What we need from the United States, rather than look back on what happened in Kirkuk, what we need today is for the United States to engage with us, to engage with Baghdad, to bring the two sides to the talking table, to the negotiating table, so that we can discuss all of these issues. Otherwise, this situation is very, very explosive. And when we come back to Target USA, a stunning revelation. We believe what's happening right now has been long in planning. And Iran appears to be behind this conflict that was 20 years in the planning. We'll explore the details when we continue on Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. The new conflict that's erupted in Iraq back in October. Many believe it happened as a result of a referendum by the Kurdistan regional government in September to seek independence from Baghdad. Almost 93% of those that voted, voted in favor of it. But as you'll hear, the actual planning for the incursion that's led to people being killed, beheaded, people losing their homes, people being assaulted in the streets by Iranian-led militia actually started more than two decades ago. And that's where we pick up our conversation with Bayan Sami Abdurrahman. She's the representative of the Kurdistan regional government in Washington. What do you believe um, was the, the objective for what took place, do you believe that the, the Iraqi forces led uh, basically essentially by this agreement that was brokered by the uh, Iranian, um, do you believe the objective was to, 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 to bring this kind of misery and suffering to the people in the, in the area or was it a miscalculation on their part? We believe what's happening right now has been long in planning. This has not happened overnight. And it hasn't happened just in reaction to our referendum on independence in September. 
Iran has for a very long time, by that I mean two decades, Iran has wanted to have a land bridge or a corridor across northern Iraq into Syria, therefore linking it by land through Iraq, Syria to Lebanon and Israel. Iran has had this plan, it's been public, and now they're able to execute it through the Iran-backed militias that it has in Iraq. We also believe that the federal government and Iran have wanted to put Kurdistan back, push us back. Kurdistan region in Iraq has a constitutional status. It is recognized as a region. We have our parliament, our government, our Peshmerga as our legitimate army. All of these are recognized in the Iraqi constitution. And we believe that there are some elements in Baghdad and in Iran that want to dismantle this that want Kurdistan to be just like any other province or group of provinces in Iraq. But you can't do that. It's like calling Scotland in the United Kingdom a series of counties. Scotland is a country. It is recognized within the United Kingdom as a nation, as a specific region. And you can't call it the county of this or the county of that. And it's the same with the Kurdistan region. So we believe what's happening today, both on the military and the economic front, has been something long in planning and wasn't just a response to our independence referendum. But we believe that we have constitutional rights. The United States, both the White House and the State Department have repeatedly told us that they believe in our constitutional rights and they want to safeguard them. What we now want to see is all of that put into action. All of this has taken place on the heels of what, by all accounts, has been a very successful fight to push ISIS out of the region. And I'm wondering how you believe this is going to impact or is impacting that fight uh, to continue to put pressure on the remaining elements of ISIS that may be in and around Iraq. Well, from our perspective, we are absolutely committed to fighting ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and any other Islamist terrorist organization or any terrorist organization. And the Peshmerga do continue to fight them. Um, however, we believe that the Iraqi federal forces and the popular mobilization forces are abusing their role. They are facing off against Kurdistan when they should be fighting ISIS. There is no terrorism in Kurdistan for them to be facing us. They need to be focusing on the enemy that is everyone's enemy, and that is ISIS. We are also very concerned about the military assistance to Kurdistan and to the Peshmerga from the United States. That assistance still has to be approved by Baghdad. And right now, Baghdad, of course, <laughs> is itself hostile to us. So we are very concerned about, in the long term about what will happen to the assistance that Congress has approved, for example, in the recent NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. What will happen to that? Congress is willing to support the Peshmerga. The United States DOD is willing to support the Peshmerga. 
Will Baghdad block that? These are areas of concern for us. So as you press forward with your concerns, what avenue or avenues do you have to uh, essentially bring this to a, a point where it actually is yielding some positive results for, for Kurdistan? Because it doesn't appear at this point, listening to just your side of this conversation, it doesn't appear as though this is a very positive scenario that you're in at this point and no one else seems to be willing to talk about this publicly, the underlying concerns and problems here. So what do you believe is the path here? You've mentioned already the U.S. needs to uh, essentially do some brokering and, 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 and do some negotiating work, but what, if anything else, is necessary or possible at this point? Well, we are reaching out to all of our friends, of course. Uh, our priority is the United States because of its leadership in the world, its leadership in the coalition against ISIS, the United's role, uh, United States' role in Iraq. Um, just last week, uh, the foreign minister for the Kurdistan region was in Washington, D.C., and we had meetings with the Pentagon, with the State Department, with General McMaster at the White House, and they all expressed their support for the Kurdistan region status within the Iraqi constitution. And they see Kurdistan playing a positive role in uh, within the total Iraqi framework. So we were reassured by that. And we really need to follow up with them and how they are going to now express this to Baghdad so that we are able to see a result. But we're also talking to our friends in Europe and particularly the United Kingdom, France. President Macron has played a very positive role, has spoken to Prime Minister Abadi. He has also spoken to Prime Minister Barzani of the Kurdistan region. And of course, we are also talking to Baghdad. Um, we talk to Baghdad, we talk to Ankara, we talk to Tehran. Of course, not at the level that we would like, which is to be negotiating and talking. But the channels of communication are open everywhere. And we hope that by continuing to raise these issues, to make them public, and to continue to keep these channels of communication open, that we will eventually be able to see a better situation for ourselves and for the rest of Iraq as well. And I would say also, the United States should remember that the people of Kurdistan, the Peshmerga, have been a reliable ally to the United States. And that is worth preserving, not just for us, but I would, ask, uh, I would argue also for the United States. Well, that is a very good point. And um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today about these very troubling developments and hopefully there will be some resolution and some forward-leaning progressive uh, solutions to come up in the few days in the coming days, weeks, and months. And is there anything else you want to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? No, I think we've covered everything, JJ. Thank you very much for listening to me, and I'm sorry about my very croaky voice. That was a part of our conversation with Bai and Sami Abdul-Rahman a bit earlier today, November 29th, 2017, and in response to her comment about having a croaky voice, I simply said, having a croaky voice is better than no voice. And I said that because we've reached out to some of the other parties involved in this, and 
They simply haven't responded. One of the people who did respond earlier, actually back in October after this was going on, was General Paul Funk, the commanding general of Operation Inherent Resolve in Iraq and, of course, in the area, in the region. And here's a part of our conversation that day. The situation in Kirkuk and in, in, in northern Iraq, how's that impacting the fight? Well, it's starting, uh, it's, a, that, it's a political um, issue, but it's starting to distract, distract from uh, our preparations for our next phase of the campaign, which I don't really want to go into yet. I don't want to tip anybody's hand, but it is starting to, to detract, and I'm hoping both parties will come to a, uh, a negotiated settlement and, and figure a way forward because we still have a common enemy and dash. Without getting into your sources, methods, and your plans, how is this distracting? How, how is the situation between the Kurds and the Iraqi uh, army distracting? Well, we, we, we didn't move on time to reposition our force. We're, we're still, uh, you know, we're, we're, we've got the political leaders focused on, on trying to uh, watch the, each other's you know, watch each other's moves instead of focusing on Dash, and our rhetoric is not helpful uh, between both parties. After all, at the end of the day, uh, all these people are Iraqis, and they and they need to settle their differences peacefully, and then we need to get on to uh, defeating Dash. General, how how is this party, or, or how how is this problem between the parties? impacting the safety and security and the operations of Americans over there? I, it's not having an impact on us other than delaying our ultimate defeat of Dash. Okay. What do you think is the next step then in, in the process without getting into specific I think plans? they need to sit, sit down uh, both sides and negotiate uh, the, and reestablish the, the sovereignty of the, of the country of Iraq and uh, get on with uh, healing and we're focusing on a combined effort to defeat Dash. Right. Well, what is the next step in the fight against Dash? Uh, the next step is to is to defeat them at their last sanctuary, and then and then um, reset the country and be prepared to deal with any kind of um, any kind of uh, problem that might cause them to uh, lose focus on rebuilding their country. So internal threats. Would be a, would be one thing that they'll want to make sure that they're ready to deal with. They got to reorganize the force. They've got to re- modernize the force. They've got to heal the divisions between some of the parties and things. And then they got to get into being a productive member of society. General, one of the key things we have often heard about when it comes to organizations like that um, engaging in, in some cases, ungoverned space or permissive environments, is that they present a threat possible threat regionally, but beyond regionally, they can actually uh, engage in plotting and planning here in the homeland. How has that been impacted, you think? Well, we're, we're attacking the, uh, the external operations capability all the time. We're taking something away from them. Uh, they're first uh, separating the leaders from the lead, then we're, we're destroying their sanctuaries, and then we're, we're actually attacking all of their systems as well. So we're, we want them to feel pursued across the globe. Do you think they still have the capability to launch uh, international attacks now? 
I think it's been disrupt, disrupted, but I believe that they are still a viable threat and that we as a coalition have to maintain uh, vigilance and persistence against this threat. You mentioned a little earlier on that they are reverting back or morphing back into a networked kind of scenario. Does that does that mean that they're pretty much sort of headed into an insurgency or are they retreating to cyberspace? Uh, well, I, obviously, the virtual caliphate is, is something that we need to address and continue to beat back, yes. Uh, also, I, I would say that uh, if they start to go in to try to do an insurgency, what, that's what we have to uh, build our partners to be able to deal with, buy with it through. Uh, we got to be able to build their partner capacity to defeat those kinds of th- uh, things like an insurgency. We have, to, we have to focus on the force that way. That's General Paul Funk, commander of the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherit Resolve. We'll continue to monitor that situation. Coming up in our next episode, North Korea has launched another missile, and the threat level has jumped exponentially. As Kim Jong-un said a few months ago, North Korea is determined to build on their nuclear and missile capabilities until indeed they have an existential nuclear capability that could strike the whole of the United States. This we have to prevent from happening. Coming up in our next episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and also let me know what you think. Send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. J Green at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. The Serial Killer Podcast, hosted by me, Thomas Weiberg Thune, is the podcast dedicated to serial killers. Who they were, what they did, and how. Join me as I sit down bi-weekly to bring you, dear listener, into the dark land of serial murder and psychopathy. The show goes into graphic detail on the most infamous and lesser-known serial killers from around the world, with each episode covering one unique serial killer. So far, the show has covered serial killer superstars, such as BTK, Jeffrey Dahmer and the Yorkshire Ripper, and lesser-known killers such as Elias Abuelazan and Anatoly Onoprienko. Be advised, this show is not for children as it takes you deep into the twisted world of ultimate evil. You can find me exclusively at podcastone.com or on the new Podcast One app. Also, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press. financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. 
Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin.